Hello and welcome to General Broadcast, the podcast by the East of England Ambulance Service for the Ambulance Service. My name's Jordan, the Patient Safety Integration Lead for the Trust. I hope you and yours are all doing okay. When crews turn up to a job and a patient is big sick, either through something medical or a trauma job, you'd more often than not get on the radio and call for backup. Depending on the situation, you might get a HEMS team land or arrive in car. Then they assess the situation and help with deciding the best care plan for that patient. But the skills that these teams bring aren't just clinical, they're also bringing a huge amount of critical thinking tools to the party that help try and make sure that the stress of the situation doesn't mean the patient gets the wrong treatment or go to the wrong place or that something is missed. Lou Rosson and Chris Neal are both... CCPs and have worked in the field of pre-hospital emergency medicine for years between them. They've got a huge mix of experience and are also some of the nicest people I've had the pleasure of working with. In what I thought was going to be about the clinical side of their roles, like open heart surgery on the road, we actually spent most of our time discussing making safe decisions in stressful situations and how anyone can learn their skills. They share their thought processes for when they get to a scene and how they work as a team to make the best decisions. It was fascinating to talk to them both and I hope you all enjoy listening to it as much as I did talking with them. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us this afternoon. Before we start, I think it's quite important that we get a bit of background on, on both of you. So, Lou, can you just tell us quickly a bit about yourself and the, the journey that you've taken to get to where you are today? Sure, yeah. I joined the Ambulance Service in 2006. Um, I was fortunate enough to um, join HEMS in 2012. Um, so I've done a few years now with HEMS and had um, a great opportunity of working within those teams and, and, and exposing myself to the critical care patients. And we might pick up on some of that later. Uh, Chris, what about you? So I started um, pre-hospital care in the military um, in 1993, I did 10 years, and then joined the ambulance service um, in 2003, got involved in critical care um around about 2007 working with uh organizations like magpass and, and the air ambulance so currently um work as um a ccp with the east anglin air ambulance and in a voluntary role um i do a bit of work with the norfolk accident rescue service which is a basic scheme i work um on the executive as the chairman and as a responding ccp no, that's fascinating. So you both had a really kind of interesting but different journey to where you are now. Sticking with you then, Chris, what what kind of appeals to you about the the world of kind of trauma in these kind of incidents? Because you said that you're the chairman of, of NARS. And what I've noticed is that a lot of CCPs and, and critical care doctors tend to also volunteer a lot of their time, their free time to the role as well. So what what appeals to you about it and why do you think so many people like yourselves do volunteer extra time? So I think it's a thirst for gaining knowledge 
and development because a while ago we didn't really have that many options for development it was either management or being a paramedic on the road um basics was born out of trauma being the current disease years ago probably due to um the vehicles involved with lack of health and safety um and and obviously these organizations have got smaller with higher trained clinicians doctors paramedics etc um and yeah it's there's a bit of excitement managing critically ill and injured patients and that does attract certain types of people of course though um one of the things we are noticing is the disease today isn't so much trauma it's more cardiac arrest which is probably quite an interesting thing that people don't really see critical care teams for is that actually the growing amount of patient groups that we see is is actually increasing medical so we find ourselves dealing with a lot more medically ill patients these days than trauma no that's really interesting lou would you would you kind of agree with those comments yeah i think so i think um like chris has said for me it was a it was a, a an opportunity to develop as an as a clinician um but i think it's become more than that i think it's you sort of you enter into a, a different community almost and i think you sort of um not just develop as a clinician but as a person and i think the, uh, a big part of that is crm and human factors and that's something i never really appreciated and that's the sort of thing you can bring into all aspects of your life in particularly like home life as well i think um having good crm sort of human factor skills it just it's just so valuable in every aspect of life um so yeah i've definitely the attraction was was obviously the clinical side of it but <clears throat> i definitely would advertise to anybody else that's interested that it's so much more than that no that's fantastic and i know that obviously we can't talk about trauma and hems without touching on the human factors element uh, i do want to do a, a whole a whole episode on it because i think that it's so important and something that you can use on on any job let alone the the kind of high risk critical ones uh lou sticking with you the you've talked about you know different different kind of people different um interests from what i see there there tends to be this sort of camp between trauma clinicians and kind of primary care clinicians do you, do you think it's fair that people kind of sit on one side of the camp to the other do you think that that it's right that some people kind of go one side or the other what's your what's your view on it i think there's probably a natural uh interest in sort of either trauma or, or medical jobs um i think it's incorrect that there's an assumption that critical care clinicians um are all about the trauma um because i personally probably prefer medical like i really enjoy uh, a medical like a query collapse cause um i think working through a medical patient is so much more challenging than trauma where it's fairly black and white um so i think and we do probably it's fair to say 50 percent of our work if not more is medical um and they can be really rewarding jobs as well, um, which I know Chris as well has probably got some great stories of some survivor patients as well that um, that it, you can bring so much medicine to a patient um, rather than sort of trauma care. So I think the assumption that 
we're either we're all trauma and then there's people that are that are interested in medical then I think that's incorrect I think from a sort of primary care point of view traditionally there were the ECPs and the CCPs as it were but I think they're really merging now and I think um I think it's it's really important that we understand both roles to be that sort of holistic approach that that holistic clinician to sort of understand um it's not just all critical care everyone's dying sort of thing I think you have to really do step back and think bigger than that think of the bigger picture and that does involve primary care um understanding so I think certainly from a critical care point of view having an understanding of primary care is really key no that's interesting and I, I don't know how many people will have looked at it in that way so thank you so much for that Chris, am I right in saying that you've done some work on the perception of HEMS and critical care clinicians? Is that right? Yes, um, I did um, participate in developing a qualitative study um, looking at that because there's not an awful lot of evidence so far um, about HEMS um, and certainly about how we interact with the ambulance service. So yeah, about about three years ago, um, I set up a study. So it was just um, based on face-to-face interviews, uh, semi-structured interviews, focus groups, as they were. Um, from that, um, um, I recorded um, these interviews and then developed uh, essentially themes from them. Um, and 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 these 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 sort of themes demonstrated four main um, learning outcomes, I think, if, if you can call it that. Um, so the EMS, or we call them the most medical services in the study, so ambulance crews kind of recognise that as, as HEMS personnel, we certainly offer, as Lou talked about, the CRM side of things. So team leadership, recognising when people are potentially getting a bit stressed on scene, maybe, or behaving differently, and maybe down to managing critically ill patients, of course, because we can behave differently in those circumstances. Um, they recognised that the skills that we brought to scene certainly were valuable, and that was more around pre-hospital emergency, anaesthesia and sedation. But interestingly, there were also some barriers that um, were picked up, and that was probably the lack of insight that they had to what we offered and our, oper- our operations and our culture. Um, and actually that might be a little bit of our fault for not really um, giving information on what we do. So essentially our service users, as it were, weren't really aware of what we did. And the fourth theme was um, there was more barriers in terms of um, in the past, we might have been a little bit dismissive because obviously we've got critically ill patients and we want to manage them quite quickly. And crews might have felt a little bit put out because we hadn't involved them. That, that was a while back, but I think these days we certainly got better at that. Um, but even so, we we do work quite quickly, and I think it's really important that you know we involve crews in there. So there was quite a lot of learning outcome um, and recommendations. So recommendations would be that we would train together, um, we would provide information about what we do, um, and maybe share some social events 
where we could improve working relationships and reduce sort of apprehension on their side. That's uh, that's really interesting because that seems to be the the factor, doesn't it? That you guys, uh, let's say you're both on on a hem shift, you you turn up at incidents regardless of whether it's you know trauma or medical, like you were saying, and you have to work quite quickly. So if you don't know the people, you have to build a relationship rather rapidly to then be able to help treat the the patient and deal with the the situation around them and you could be dealing with x number of crews a night over x number of weeks so i guess building that uh that reputation almost is quite important so that people know that when you do arrive uh they know what you're able to offer like you say it's extremely important and actually it's all about the patient really that's what we're all working towards and if if we can We've got a common goal. If we can just work together a bit more and promote the understanding of our, each other's strengths and weaknesses, then certainly that that's a step forward um, in improving patient care and outcome. No, I think that's that's great, and it kind of leads me quite nicely onto the 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 next bit. You know, we talked about demystifying the the trauma hems CCP world. So I wonder if if between you, I'll, I'll throw it out to you guys, if you could talk us through your kind of thought processes on the way to a job when you're when you're at a job and and kind of what you're thinking so that people can understand what it's like inside the head of a of a CCP. Lou, did you want to start with kind of on the way to the job kind of as you're arriving? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point to pick up actually Jordan because um I think uh just like our days back on the road and I'm sure all the other crews that are out there you you become desensitized to your um I'll use the phrase run-of-the-mill work um which is obviously not something you want to happen um but for us there are a lot of uh, cardiac arrests um perhaps sort of ankle fractures, things like that, that, that is our is our sort of day-to-day work. Um, and when I think back on when I was on the road, uh, on the ambulances, and I was a new paramedic, if I got a call to a cardiac arrest, I, my heart was going at a dozen. Like I was, I was, my anxiety was there, my adrenaline was running, I'm going to a cardiac arrest. And, you know, they're, they're quite a an unusual job for for an ambulance crew that's not it's not common um and now working on hems that's sort of our day-to-day business it's fairly common for us to go to it and you become a bit desensitized which i think will probably lead us on to later on in the job perhaps our communication um but my point was that we still do have apprehension and anxiety and adrenaline goes and although it's really important for us to stay calm and we we do drill this sort of stuff so deep down we also will feel anxious and there'll be jobs that we're probably called to once in a while where we do feel worried and anxious and apprehensive um but luckily we've had the opportunity to really train with those sort of feelings and emotions to know how to control them how to recognize them so on the way to a job um it wouldn't be it we're not we're just the same as anyone else we do do we do get anxious and things about particular jobs um but it's sort of about knowing how to manage those emotions and we'll go through the process of just sort of thinking out in your head 
but not out loud because I think it can lead you down the garden path sometimes. But just sort of running things through in your head. Where's your kit? What sort of kit are you likely to need? Um, what are the important sort of first actions to think about? Um, and we we talk very little about the job on the way uh, because it's too easy to preempt um, the job. And you might turn up and it's something completely different, as we all know. Um, but what we do talk about is the um, the hospitals that we're likely going to need. Um, and that's really important to know the things you can prepare for before you get to the job so that your bandwidth isn't taken up thinking about those. And, that, and the other thing that involves is kit. So know your kit and know what hospitals are where and how long it's going to take so that we don't have to think about that when we're on scene. So... They're the things we probably think about on the way to the job. So it's, it's a lot of it is about kind of preparing yourself mentally and and physically for the for the known knowns and the unknown unknowns and the many <laughs> variations of that, like you say. And and it's really interesting that you mentioned about uh, about not wanting to be kind of lead yourself up the garden path because I've, I've definitely spoken to a number of crews and I'm sure you know you guys have experienced it yourself where a job comes in and it says x and you get there and it's y and then suddenly your whole world turns upside down so that's a that's a really really interesting point what about when you actually arrive you know at the front door at the RTC the, the whatever it is what's what's the kind of first things that you're looking at Obviously, safety, um, and that starts really from the minute we get in the helicopter. Obviously, but um, but getting out of the aircraft if we're by by air is um, is obviously a safety element there. Um, but even just arriving by road as well, um, you're so focused on the job that you miss the you know the the motorbike turning or or the lorry coming around. So yeah, safety is a big big element, and it's um, it's very easy on these big jobs to sort of get tunnel visioned into where you're heading and kind of miss the the oil on the floor or the the ravenous dog or something so um i think just slowing the approach down um to even if it's just into the house like it gives you that time to absorb the information around you so what are your access points how are you going to get this patient out of the house if they're really sick um was there a tiny staircase was there a big opening that sort of thing so slowing yourself down as you approach even though you want to go quite fast you have to really consciously slow yourself down absorb the information and I think it's fairly common practice amongst us to walk the scene of the accident if you can uh, because once you're with the patient you won't get the opportunity to to sort of see the mechanism and the mechanism is really important in us understanding the, the injury patterns of these patients so trying to get that opportunity to actually walk past the car or the motorbike before getting to the patient um, is really important. Yeah, that, that that sounds exactly like the kind of stuff that I know you've spoken to me about before and other critical care clinicians have, have said as well. So I think it's really interesting the fact that, that you guys tend to go to the, the jobs that are more likely to be stressful, panicky, all those CRM human factor elements that, that we mentioned and and the number one thing is slow it all down because uh slow is smooth and smooth is fast and all those other uh, kind of terms mm -hmm. and everything so yeah that's that's brilliant chris when you're actually by by the patient can you talk us through 
what it actually is that you're you're looking for what are you triaging because i know that when you get to a patient who's you know query collapse like you say and and it's not a it's not an urgent rush it's not a you have to swoop and scoop kind of incident people can take a bit more time they can really dive into the the history of the patient but again the jobs that you're going to you don't normally have the luxury of time so so what are you what are you looking for when you get to the patient well it is it's the the global overview it's trying to soak the scene up quite quickly and you do need to take your time um that end of bed assessment it can tell you an awful lot so you can almost automatically do an a b c d e assessment just looking at that patient and I suppose a lot of pattern recognition comes into it, having done these jobs before. If um, So scenarios are slightly different. So if we've maybe um, jumped into the back of an ambulance and we can see the patient on the trolley, we'll, we'll be looking at what's going on um, and trying to listen to the crew. What I tend to do, because because obviously that's, that's an awful lot of information coming your way, is I will... Do the do my scene assessment. I will get my notepad out and black pen, and I will listen to the ambulance crew giving me information. I will write it down uh, quite quickly in a note form, um, and that might include things like previous medical history, what time things were given, what happened, and it just gives me a chance to try and soak that up, and obviously go back to those notes later as as I'm trying to you know work out more clues and things um, on an RTC side of things much like Lou said you know walking around with you if you're working with someone else if you've got a team member just chatting uh, with them working through um, ideas together and seeing safety and communication is is the key there and then and then you've got to then break that down further into what do you think needs to happen next so there are obviously as you pointed out patients that are so sick that you might see something and, and want to get on with that um, quite quickly. But with the CRM side that we, we work towards, it's very important because at the moment, essentially, that patient uh, belongs to the responsibility of the leading clinician and it would be very rude just to take over. So what we normally do is we um, we ask them if they're happy for us to repeat a primary survey and maybe attach our monitoring um, and potentially repeat a primary survey um, before then building a plan with with the crews. So it, you can see that we do things in stages. So arrive, scene assessment, soak up the scene, get the information, communicate with the crew, work out from them as well what immediate needs they have because they might have called us for a particular reason because they uh, recognise that we might be able to do something that they can't. Um, and then, of course, we, we look at what treatment needs to be done and then how to... Um, carry that out and and actually in, in terms of an rtc um i have a very good process in mind that i have how i do that so um i'll do my primary survey discuss with the team a treatment regime talk it through um get some get some um task allocation and and then probably work backwards from there so for example where does that patient need to be well they need to be in a major trauma center okay how did they get there do they go by land or do they go by air? Okay, well, if they're going by land, which ambulance are they going in? And is that ambulance able to drive in that direction or is there a fire engine in the way? So let's move the fire engine out of the way. How are we going to get the patient to the ambulance? Well, on a trolley and a scoop. And then how are we going to get the patient potentially out of the car 
um, on a longboard or, or on a scoop, you know. So we have our ways of dealing with it. And, and we try to do things as quickly as we can because, of course, the Amnet Service are monitored on how quickly they get to scene, and as we are to a degree, but we pay very careful attention to the time of how long we're on scene because all the interventions that we do need to, need to be meaningful. We won't spend time doing things that are going to waste time and not really add anything, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And on that point, actually, to both of you, do you think that, and I'm playing devil's advocate here for a second, I can, I'm completely aware of it. Do you think that that kind of awareness of, of your, you know, the, the kind of how long you're on scene, do you think that impacts in a, in a positive way your, your treatment of patients? Or do you think that, you know, it's, it's not the best thing in the world or there are other ways around it, if that makes sense? It's interesting, actually, this point, because um, I, I did an ambulance shift at the weekend and um, I spoke to a crew who'd done a, a job with uh, a, one of the HEMS teams. And um, there was a there was an element of t- scene time uh, discussion because actually uh, this was a ROSC patient um, who appeared to have arrested from a hypoxic cause. Um, and there was no sort of STEMI on the ECG or any immediate intervention at hospital needed. What this patient needed was really good airway and ventilation management um, and oxygenation. And uh, and so the, 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 the HEMS team sort of paused the process of going to hospital to allow uh, this sort of anaesthetic to take place and the intubation of the patient. And the crew's perception when I chatted to them, they didn't quite grasp it felt like they'd, you know, delayed, they were around the corner from the hospital, they delayed getting to hospital and um and and why why wait longer on scene when they'd already been on scene X amount of time um and they were around the corner from the hospital and, and it's a really good point because I'm sort of throwing it the other end, which is um it's really important that we understand what's going on with the patient, what is it they need, and is that something we must do now? or actually is the thing they need somewhere else, so definitive care, and actually the focus now is getting them to that definitive care safely and as quickly as possible. And and that's really different on every different job. It depends what's wrong with the patient, and that then comes back to the assessment of the patient is really important and having an understanding of what's what's going on and what the patient's needs are. Um, so we, we drill to be rapid on scene for those patients that are bleeding to death, as an example, um, that we can't do anything on scene for, non-compressible. So we are practised in being really quick on scene. But then on other jobs, we may be, you know, let's focus on the treatment they need, which is something we can provide here. And then that feels a little bit slow for people. So it all comes down to just communicating really well why we're doing it and and for the crews not to feel afraid to ask as well and raise the point. No, that's brilliant. Chris, do you have anything to add to that? Um, Yes, I do. And Lou's absolutely right because there are some patients that um, when we arrive, we can provide the interventions that are required. And we're so lucky really sometimes to be part of a skilled team. And I'm talking about um, a critical care doctor and a critical care paramedic where you can bring such advanced interventions to scene. So the post-ROSC situation is a good example where we've got an opportunity to provide an anaesthetic. And the reason we would do that is so we can control their breathing, their ventilation. And it gives us an opportunity to also monitor them 
and provide additional intervention like vasoactive drugs just to control their blood pressure and mean arterial pressure. Um, and once you've done that, you then need to transfer the patient, yeah, fairly quickly to the right area. But um, I would just, if there was some advice I'd give to my, my, my colleagues out there is the transportation to hospital needs to be also, you know, it's also an, an important area. So driving very fast can have a big influence on patients' physiology. Um, we see that now. Some of our patients are monitored with invasive blood pressure, which is arterial lines that you get a beat-by-beat beat blood pressure. And harsh acceleration and deceleration in an ambulance can play havoc with their physiology. Um, so I, I would say, you know, in terms like that, a nice smooth drive to hospital is is equally important. Um, and actually... We do provide these skills and procedures very quickly and often quicker than a team can arrive from the ITU department to A&E. Um, and this patient may sit there for an hour just waiting for cardiology review with all of these things done. So already before before they come down, you know, and that's done by the pre-hospital team. So just just there are times where you just have to go a little bit slower, if that makes sense. And, and driving is just, just a, a good um example of that yeah there's there's a couple of points that i'm picking up from from what both of you are saying one is that that throttle control and i don't mean that based on what you've literally just said chris uh, is is really important sometimes it's really important to you know get to scene do the do the actions quickly and and you know get everything done that you need to and sometimes it's quite important to to slow down and and be considerate in your actions and your your thoughts what it also sounds like is that just because a a patient is time critical, it doesn't mean that the old adage of the best life-saving liquid is diesel is necessarily accurate all of the time. Do you think that, both of you, do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. It's this case-by-case case sort of dependent, really, on, on what the patient's needs are. I'd say those patients that need to get to hospital fairly quickly are those that have had a stroke, um, those that have had a myocardial infarction that need PPCI, and those that are bleeding out. Um, other patients can be managed a little bit slower. Of course, we don't delay anything, um, but we'll look at patients case by case, as Lou said. And, and I think one of the things that in a critical care world it is that, that we see a slight difference between east is our culture so if you look at each hem system or critical care system or basic system they're all born out of mistakes that we've made in the past we we've, we've made mistakes and it's good to to make mistakes if you learn from them right you know if you, if you get me so if we look at a checklist that that was made from previous mistakes or missing things or not having an option cylinder ready when you need it if you look at why we might carry a bag of our mask in the second drawer in the helicopter, well, that's probably there because we didn't have one when we needed one. Um, certainly, that's our culture. And we, we, we try not to sweep anything under the carpet. If there's an error, we need to make sure we're all aware of it and learn from that mistake. It's so important to learn from mistakes and not think, you know, that's the worst thing in the world. We've got to hide that and sweep that away. I think that's how we've developed 
and all the things we do are, are from the errors that we've made. I couldn't reiterate that enough. We really do need to get uh, ourselves in a position where we do report every error or near miss um, to say, look, like this happened to me. Um, let and and the process really is, and and the SI process really is. Let's pick apart the incident, and the people involved are the experts now. Let's pick apart the incident and understand how it happened and what's different to what should have happened and then what can we put in place to try and stop that happening again for the next people because someone else will make the same mistake for sure and it's really exactly as Chris said like being open and learning from it not it's not a disciplinary it's not a thing to hide from it's a thing to talk about and to learn from definitely and, and one of the examples that we've we've seen at the minute in the patient safety team that we sort of alluded to at the beginning which was um being open for differential diagnosis so trying to not allow what's written on the mdt take you down a path that may not allow you to think about other possible considerations when you're thinking about safe discharge or something like that no i i couldn't agree more and lou working with you in the patient safety team i you know i see these things as well and we've talked about them on on different podcasts and stuff but just to reiterate again how important it is to to report incidents because they're a way of learning the thing that i'm picking up from you guys the most is that whilst you know whilst you are both incredibly skilled clinicians and are able to diagnose and identify and and treat a whole range of of conditions the things that you've been talking about more are those and I'm going to say it non-technical skills it's the it's the the diagnosing it's the the scene management it's the crew resource management it's the the planning ahead that that kind of thing do you think that that it's those skills above anything else which which you you value more, or is that an unfair question? It's a big part of what we do. And, and certainly within NARS, we have a mentorship programme. And um, when we're mentoring new paramedics that are coming into the critical care world, we focus the most on the non-technical soft skills, about how they communicate, about how they approach a situation. And, we, and when we're debriefing, we break absolutely everything down and we're looking at those um, softer skills. And actually, they're really difficult to measure. But our theory is if we had more clinicians out there that had adopted CRM, understanding human factors, we'd probably have less error um, that goes on. And I think a big thing that we do add as critical care paramedics is that um, that CRM, that those non-technical skills, certainly. But as I say, very difficult to measure. Um, potentially, if we had a lot more of them out there, you might see less SIs, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, potentially, I think so. Lou, what what were you going to say? Sorry, I jumped in. No, I was just, um, I, was, I completely agree with Chris. I think, um, I guess we can't uh, ignore the fact that we are in a, an environment where we're being exposed to these patients regularly. So, sort of the pattern recognition, the exposure to these types of patients definitely is an element of what develops your skills um, and also we're in a very rich learning environment for uh, we debrief 
almost every job um, and they're debriefed by a consultant or a senior paramedic um, and, and they're sort of picked apart. So the, the learning is very rich, but definitely the non-technical skills is a big element and, and that's kind of replicated in the recruitment for critical care um, teams, like whether that's paramedics, HEMS paramedics, doctors, that um, a big part of that is about um, testing people's uh, human factor skills, so their communication, their behaviours, their working under pressure, and that's something that we definitely look for. And you do develop it, but um, it's good to sort of see where the baseline is and how people behave. Um, which is obviously a really important part of it. Yeah, that, that all sounds fantastic. So using that knowledge then that you guys have been talking about and like you say, the, the kind of pattern recognition and, and skill sets that you've developed over the years, what what are the main things that you see when you arrive at scene that that if you had the chance, you would you know speak to the crews and say, if you were able to do X, it would change the situation slightly or or make life easier for you again that i know that's an an unfair may seem like an unfair question but as you guys are seeing these jobs more on the regularly like you say what what advice would you be giving to crews based off what you're you're seeing more commonly with them could probably add a few things and i'm sure luke could so for the new guys that start with us i try and teach them to do a go stop go stop go stop process so they arrive on scene and they they try and work out what's going on they do an assessment of the patient they stop they communicate they then work out you know what they're going to do with the patient who's going to do what and they do that they then stop again see how everyone's getting on bit of situational awareness see if anybody's got a better idea of or, or happy with what we're doing and then move on so it's just breaking into chunks and and the other thing I would say is um, marginal gains and meaningful intervention. So how can you um, do things quickly? Um, I would say don't do things unnecessarily. So I wouldn't, if I went to a young gentleman that had um, maybe had an RTC, hit a tree head on, and they've got this patient in the ambulance, I wouldn't repeat a 12, I wouldn't do a 12 lead ECG, for example. You know, the likelihood of that young male having an MI um, is unlikely. So, you know, I would focus my treatment, my assessment on things that are related to the incident, if that makes sense. I've, um, I've probably got two that are sort of worth talking about. One, one would be shared decision-making. Um, and I think that is something we do practice quite well in critical care. Um, we have on-call consultants. We work in a team of two always, um, sometimes three. Um, when we're responding as a CCP on our own, like we've still got our CCD clinician or our on-call advice um, for sharing that decision-making. And um, even with the experience that some of our colleagues have got, you'll you'll always see them asking for advice sharing the decision making do you think i'm on the right frame of mind are we are we thinking about the same thing um and the ambulance service obviously also has a lot of avenues for that so clinical vice line ccd other healthcare professionals and um, there's a lot of access out there my so so i think that's really key um 
And the second thing is something that uh, one of our governance consultants taught me a long time ago, which was taking 10 seconds for 10 minutes. Um, so allowing yourself, even when it feels really unnatural, just to pause for 10 seconds. Um, and that sort of allows you just to really think about what's going on, absorb the information and process. Um, and I'll just refer to a, a podcast that was um, put out by the Clinical Human Factors Group, um, Dr. Stephen Hearns, who's the um, the author of uh, Peak Performance Under Pressure. And he talks about five key elements of communication failure and uh, and when they occur on these quite stressful jobs. Um, I'll go through them because I think they're really important. So one of the reasons is time pressure. So when you're short of time, your communication becomes affected. So that 10 seconds for 10 minutes helps. Um, you're constantly distracted by things. Um, so again, pausing will, uh, will just allow you to process. Uh, we're multitasking all the time constantly multitasking and and we do have to do that um to be able to shorten those scene times and um have concurrent activity um we often work in what they call flash teams where you don't know the people you're around so now your communication is even more important so it's acknowledging that and there are hierarchies whether we continue to try and squash them or not they sort of still exist so trying to acknowledge them but feeling everyone must feel empowered to challenge or raise or question um obviously within re within reason where it's appropriate um to sort of improve the patient care um and it's just interesting the podcast has been has brought that up because of uh current with a uh, ppe and how our PP is starting to affect those sort of lines of communication that we'd usually have, like the implicit sort of communication, the body language, the the facial changes, the eye contact, that sort of thing. So, so I think just taking 10 seconds for 10 minutes gain allows you just to process things, communicate a bit more effectively. Um, again, like you said, Jordan, it's not it's not really about do this in this clinical way. It's actually more about the uh, the non-technical stuff. I was just thinking as as you guys were talking uh, for for anyone who's listening to this podcast thinking that they're going to learn how to do a thoracotomy <laughs> I'm really sorry this might not be the one for you I know that the resus room recently did one entirely on pelvic injury so have a listen yeah. to that kind of thing but it's it's just really interesting how how the skills that you're you're bringing like I say you know you you are you are trained in those kind of expert critical condition incidents but the, the main skills that you guys are talking about are the ones of just making the right decision. But obviously the fact that you guys have those extra skill sets, you know, you can anaesthetise at the roads, you can do open heart surgery almost at the roadside. That's the, that is the element that, that you bring. But the, the main stuff seems to be that ability to stop, think and make the right choice. And do you think that that's because the the skill sets that you bring are so invasive and uh what's the word i'm trying to look for they 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 are really impactful you know if you're doing a thoracotomy at the roadside that's that's a really big procedure do you think that do you think that that's why it's so important that you're making the right decisions as you go yes definitely <laughs> some of those skills you know are 
well, you, you, you can you can do them disastrously wrong, can't you? If you're in the wrong mindset, if your bandwidth is, is gone. So, yes. Um, and I think we have pushed those non-technical side. Um, but I, thought, I think it's also important for people to understand that, yes, yes, we do embrace human factors as well. But there's no substitute for um, knowledge and understanding of disease process, physiology, pathophysiology. So we do we do have um, or have done certainly myself and Lou completing our masters in critical care. We've had to do an awful lot of um, of that. You know, we're, we're certainly not doctors, but um, I think when it comes to pre-hospital care. We we have um, a similar knowledge base than than our senior as our senior colleagues doctors do, um, certainly in this area, this specialised area, um, and it, and it is interesting that you talked about um, us as CCPs being slightly different from primary healthcare. Since studying at that level, there is a lot of um, diseases and illness that we've had to learn that are similar that our primary healthcare paramedics have had to do, which probably. When you're an advanced paramedic, you're quite happy to uh, treat both, you know, like Lou was saying, that hybrid model, maybe. Yeah, because it's it's very interesting. You know, I've I've worked with both of you over the years and it's interesting that I've heard you both talk about non-trauma incidents in that kind of dissecting, interested way. You know, you are both interested in in the minutiae of why did that person collapse? Well, it's because of this and that, you know, going into some quite very technical elements of it. So I, I completely agree. I think that that's everything you've said is completely on point. Lou, have you got anything to add to that as well? No, I think, yeah, Chris is like is absolutely right. that it, We've talked a lot about human factors, non-technical skills, and they are a really important role in what we do. Um, but we train hard as well um and i think the knowledge has got to be there um but also you've got to know your kit inside out like knowing knowing pieces of equipment and i i know there are crews out there because i've been them uh that you haven't looked at that ktd in ages i i can't even remember how many bits of it are to it you know that sort of stuff like get that bit of kit out and be familiar with it because when you're at the stressful job the last thing you want to be doing is reminding yourself how to use a bit of kit. So that's something else we do on a regular basis is, is train with our kit as well. And, and learn what happens next in hospital. So if you're dealing yeah. with a patient who's got a status epilepticus and you're given diazimals, etc., think about what happens next. So all your medical emergencies, try to understand what the hospital do. And, and when you're dealing with um, primary healthcare patients too, you know, so... What would the GP do for this patient next? And how can I facilitate that? How can I understand that process? How can I um, assist that patient along their journey? And I think that's something that we had insight into when we were doing our postgraduate training, is understanding what happens next in hospital. It's so important. I'd signpost to, just to start with, NICE guidelines as well, like having a good look at the NICE guidelines as to what what people do in hospital it's a good starting point for reference yeah that's brilliant and and i think you both summed it up really nicely if we if we divert then slightly towards those trauma incidents i wonder whether whether each of you could sort of provide an example of of a i'll say an injury or a a condition or something that that really interests you or something that 
when you when you get to the scene you really you know find yourself stuck into I'm you know I'm thinking of like like multiple bone breakage is there something that you do quite in particular that you're that you're interested in or or what kind of tips would you give to someone if there is a a large pelvis injury does does that make sense yeah I think um my the thing that springs to mind um having not really thought about it too much is um head injuries and um and obviously sort of severe head injuries but the very the sort of the tiny gains that a first aider can can um, achieve with a head injury so often they've got a very low gcs if not gcs3 and they're obstructing their airway um and we know some of the key factors in preventing secondary brain injuries around good oxygenation and ventilation um and so just having such particular focus on even just a jaw thrust um and high flow oxygen can can make a huge difference to that patient's outcome so i'm quite fascinated by the very sort of basic aspects of um head injury management but also there's some really interesting parts as well like um impact brain apnea and also like the catecholamine surge you get with um arrhythmias presenting in these patients and they almost present like a shocked bleeding patient sometimes um and obviously you need to bear that in mind because they might well be um but i've certainly seen a lot of patients that have ended up being isolated heads severe head injuries um that have been very hypotensive shut down um and sort of yeah they really do make you think you have to be obviously rapid on scene because you're you're anticipating this is an expanding hematoma that you want to be evacuated in obviously neurotheatre so it's time is crucial but so is the fine stuff like uh, good airway management and blood pressure management that sort of thing um so i find those quite interesting that's brilliant chris what about you is there something in particular that you find quite interesting over anything else yeah lou stole my thunder there because i also (laughs) find that fascinating with head injuries but i think something that's common for us all is is good analgesia so um if we the sad thing is if we were to start again with paramedics and we were to choose an, an analgesic agent intravenously, it probably wouldn't be morphine. It would probably be fentanyl or ketamine. Because when you look at the side effect pro- to, profile, morphine probably is, is the one with the most side effects. But, but that's the one we've got. Um, the problem with morphine is it has a slow peak onset of 15, 15 plus minutes sometimes, depending on how well perfused the patient is. Um, and the other agents that crews have are vivoparacetamol and 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 uh, entonox and these these are good pain relieving drugs for certain patients but not great for trauma because they they take a while to work so so um we're quite lucky because we have drugs like ketamine which work quite well and most patients have that amnesia after so they're not even aware that you've pulled their limb so if i was to try and use this opportunity to give give the guys out there some advice i would say that if they're in a situation where they see someone's got a broken limb, um, I would do the basic 12, so good good entonox. I'd get the morphine doses in there quite quickly and early. Um, and don't be afraid to give more. Often when we're on CCD and our, our colleagues that work on CCD get phone calls for that sound like horrendous injuries where crews have given quite small doses of morphine. 
if you're going to give a higher dose of morphine, just make sure that you've got good monitoring, you counter the effects of histamine with, with IV fluids, etc. But also, another thing to do early is call for help. Now, critical care is embedded fairly well within this ambulance service. We've got a lot of respond, basic responders out there as well as HEM services, and we do offer um, good, good analgesia, whether it's intravenous ketamine, fentanyl, for children, we can squirt fentanyl up noses. Um, and sometimes uh, we can give regional analgesia, which is injecting drugs like lignocaine um, right next to a nerve, which can be useful. Certainly that's something we're hoping to do with the CCP skill set is um, regional analgesia for, um, uh, well, there are compartment blocks for, for NOF injuries. Um, unfortunately, our elder population who break their hip and have high doses of morphine uh, can develop delirium later on in hospital and that can increase mortality. So I'm quite keen to push the regional analgesia down the CCP route because um, that, that's, that's certainly, you know, to ease suffering is a great thing. So certainly I'd say next to head injuries, it's probably, for me, is... Um, good appropriate analgesia. Thank you both so much for that because they're, they're really interesting areas actually. I want to ask you both about something that we talked about earlier because quite fortuitously we have someone from the Norfolk Accident Rescue Service and someone from the Suffolk Accident Rescue Service because you're both based next to each other. Um, Chris, I'll, I'll go with you because we talked about how uh, how or why critical care clinicians tend to sort of volunteer their, their time a bit more. Just for people who who may not know about the kind of basic schemes, can you give us a bit of an overview of them and, and kind of what you do in, in NARS? Yes, sure. So um, the basic schemes that we both work for are nearly 50 years old um, and they were started because... Um, it was recognised. I mean, GPs would, would frequently go home and visit their patients, but they were quite active in other things such as traumatic injuries at home. And they um, they obviously identified a need for the extra skills that they would carry. Back then, that was obviously their the knowledge um, of managing patients. And they had morphine. They had intravenous fluids, all the things that ambulance crews didn't have. So they were particularly useful in easing suffering. And I should imagine there was an element of CRM and leadership and um, supporting the crews back then. Um, and then years later, as the paramedic profession developed and we developed a professional ambulance service that started to do that, our basics teams got smaller, organisations became smaller uh, because GPs thought, you know what, we've got paramedics that can do this and they get paid. But some stayed and... Um, realised they had to up their game, you know, and we had more hospital doctors joining. Um, and of course, as paramedic skill level developed, so did the skill level within basic schemes. And then today, um, we're left with hospital doctors, predominantly these days, some of, I'd say 80% of them do HEMS. And we have critical care paramedics and um, paramedics that want to develop. Certainly, interesting through NARS is that so we, we decided that we've got enough level three team doctors and paramedics on the helicopter will use this opportunity to develop paramedics and put them through higher education and mentor them 
um, most of these paramedics then find themselves on the aircraft. So it seems to be a good stepping stone to get a, a HEMS job, uh, as it were. Um, that, that certainly works well. The Ambulance Service is a professional organisation. Um, it manages the majority of patients extremely well, but there are a small group of patients that do need the additional skills and leadership that, that we, we add. And I think we see so much value in that, get so much reward that we're all willing to give up our time to do that. And I think there are plans for the ambulance service to develop advanced paramedics. And I don't think that would be the end of basics organisations. I'd like to think that the basics organisations would um, assist that, would, would be working together closely with the ambulance service because I think develop develop a critical care paramedic does take a while and you do need organisations to to help facilitate that and work with them. Um, and every paramedic's successful paramedic system around the world has very good support and leadership from the medical profession. And you, you, you can't deny that. We'll always have doctors within basics that can help train our, our future paramedics. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Chris. Lou, just to pick on you for a moment, I, you know, before COVID, we would work in the same office a lot of the time and I would very often see your phone go and it would be CCD and they'd be asking if you're available to attend a job and you would, you would go. So why, why do you do it? Why do you give up your, your time and so many of your friends as well who are also CCPs? Yeah, I think um probably got a few points to the answer that question. Um I think the the first, I'll put try and put them in priority order. I think um, obviously it's a community thing. So um, there are patients that can't be reached by the Hems teams who are rotated on, um, and they do rely on voluntary people. So I'm talking about out of hours when it's like day um, night time working. So there's less. Uh, air ambulance availability, um, weather restraints, so there are limitations for the aircrafts. Um, sometimes there are issues with the technical issues with the aircrafts, or there's just they're not available because they're out on jobs. So um, I think the first thing is the sort of community feel, like you're giving something to your community and to the patients that need you because they do need you at times. Um, I guess the second thing is I've been that crew where I've been desperate for somebody to come and help. Um, and uh, sometimes I've had help and sometimes I haven't. And I, you know, I can recall those very vividly. So I want to be able now that I've got these skills and experience to give that back to my colleagues who are, uh, haven't had that opportunity or that experience and, and be there to support them. Um, and then I guess it's a, it's a really important way to maintain your skills as an autonomous practitioner so um, obviously work on the the air ambulance in teams um, but I think it's really important because it's a very different job uh, when you're working on your own and trying to do the same similar things same patients um, but you're sort of thinking on your own so obviously sharing that decision making but I think it's a really good way to expose yourself to uh, to that environment as well. That's that's brilliant and and thank you so much for that. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up the conversation here. I just wonder if we could go to both of you and kind of take a take a top tip from your your time in in your roles that if you could 
give a piece of advice to your younger self before you became CCPs, what would it be? And and Lou, we'll start with you if that's all right. Well, I was hoping you weren't going to say start with me. Um, trying to think of my top tips left. It's very easy to think you can't achieve. So when I look back and when I uh, I applied for this job, I never thought I would uh, be successful. In fact, I didn't really think about applying because I just didn't think it was something that I'd be capable of doing or be successful at. Um, and I, I think my top tip would be to have confidence in your um, ability and opportunity and and to to stay motivated. It's really hard to, to, to lose that motivation and I appreciate that, but um, I think that would be my, my top tip is to try and stay motivated, stay motivated and um, and seek the opportunities. Now that's amazing. Thank you so much. Chris, what about you? Um, I think it is to learn how to be patient. Um, people look at critical care and CCPs and think that it's great. But the guys that are involved in it have usually been involved in it for a number of years and there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears in pushing forward the profession. The development happens very slowly. We've been knocked back several times by things that you wouldn't believe. Um, I'll give you an example. So I spent three years developing a rock uranium um, uh, for post-resuscitation care, which is if you've intubated a patient during cardiac arrest, they've, they're still intubated and they've now got a ROSC, how you can ventilate them and, and you know, provide too much oxygen going to the body prevent too much carbon dioxide from building up and other things um we eventually get there and then you know you get pushed back and you get taken it back off you again and then we're looking at ways of reintroducing so it's learning how to be patient that's the biggest thing and just recognize that um the paramedic profession is very fledgling um when you when when you look back at how quickly we have developed um and the rest of the nhs and outlet service has to catch up with it. Certainly the things that we're doing um, within East, we've done very early. So we look at London outlet service with advanced paramedics and stuff. They think they've been going for about five years, maybe. We were giving ketamine and midazolam in 2005, 2006. So this service back in the day was very forward thinking. So yeah, um, things happen slowly. And and actually, Lou's talked about frustration. You know, if you're more patient, you might get less frustrated. So if you're entering or you want to get into this profession, just take your time. It's not going to happen overnight. Work towards it. Study hard. Try and become part of a basic scheme. Most of our CCPs are self-presenters. They weren't given it on a plate. They worked really hard to get into it that's fantastic and i think that's a that's a perfect note to end on uh i want to thank you both so much for your for your time i know that uh i know that you're very busy people chris you said that you've literally just come off a night shift so thank you so much um thank you for everything that you're doing as well over this weird and strange period because i know you're both still going out and and responding as well so so thank you so much for that uh, I'll say now, stay safe and uh, take care. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Take care.
thanks again for listening. 